Okay, welcome to another edition of the Cultural Class Podcast, the podcast where we get to interact with people from different backgrounds and get to learn about other cultures. My name is Nosa, and you're welcome to another episode. Uh, today, I have Brian Awe uh, from the East Coast, United States, uh, just outside of New York, I guess, is it? Just outside yeah. of New York or upstate yeah, just, New York? Just, just outside, just outside New York. Right, right. I remember when I was coming to the U.S., like uh, one of the universities I wanted to come to was the University of Buffalo. I actually did go to Buffalo, uh, paid the acceptance fee and everything, but I, I didn't, like, when I saw the University of Buffalo, I was like, oh, this is in New York. I thought it was, like, New York City. Well, I was, like, three, <laughs> three hours away in, like, upstate New York. So when I went there, I was like, man, how am I going to get an internship? This is not even anywhere close to the city. Close, so I ended up yeah. going to school in D.C. and everything after paying the, the acceptance fee and whatnot. But, you know, just one of those yeah. early lessons that I learned about the American geography. No, I have a, I have a similar story. When I was applying to um, to colleges in the U.S., I applied to Carleton College in Minnesota, and uh, I didn't get in. Thank goodness I didn't get in because I don't think I would have survived. I would have survived the cold. I don't think I would have survived the cold in Minnesota. So ultimately, I wound up going to uh, to Connecticut College in New London. Connecticut is not any warmer. Maybe not as cold as Minnesota. But I, I would imagine well, it's, it's fairly I mean, cold as well. If it's the difference between you know four months of cold and eight months of cold, I'll always right. take I'll always take four months. I'll always choose right. four months of cold weather. That makes sense. <laughs> no, that, you know what? That makes sense. You know, I currently live in Colorado, and you know, I've experienced like two winters here now. And you know, I was like, why are you guys always making a big deal about the cold in Colorado? This isn't so bad. But people get to tell me that you know maybe global warming is kind of like real. <laughs> I was a lot colder than these days. In, like. in 97 and 96. In 97, it was a very different, it was a very different world. Yeah. Right, right. And did I get your last name correctly? Is it Awe? Yes, yes, yes. You you got it as 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 uh, as, as as correct as one could. As okay, one could. there we go. I lived in Ghana for three months, so maybe I picked up something. So maybe you picked up <laughs> of course the funny, the funny, but but this is the funny thing. If you if you write my name out and show it to a Ghanaian. Most Ghanaians would tell you there's no way that's a Ghanaian name. J- just because the way it's spelt was, you know, when my dad was a kid and he went to Catholic school and the white uh, missionary priest asked him his name, he pronounced it and they wrote it the way they thought. And and, and so it's a, I've, I've decided not to mess with it because it works. You know, people either, they either re- remember me because of my name or they remember me because I do something that just sticks in their memory, something foolish that sticks in their memory. And they're like, is that guy with the vowels, with all the vowels in his name, so. Right, you know what, that makes it, like we, we seem to have a lot of similarities because my, my mother, like her mating name is uh, all her family are brothers and sisters and everyone like her name is Udo, her maiden name, but it's spelled U-D-O. But she's the only one that has U-D-O-H because initially I think it was like a music teacher or someone in school who claimed he was from her village and knew the ancestry and she's spelling her name wrong and forced her to change it to U-D-O-H. So all our official documents are U-D-O-H. Our whole family is like U-D-O. So that's a very funny how, you know, teachers and people can influence us like directly or indirectly when we're pretty young. But speaking of being pretty young let's talk about you know your growing up uh, from what i understand you know uh, you you grew up uh, in, in you know two parts of west africa nigeria and ghana but you spent quite a, a bunch of time in in northern ghana 
and growing up with your grandfather? Yeah, so my family comes from Ghana. I'm, I'm, I'm Ghanaian uh, by ancestry. In 1979, you know, Nigeria was going through the oil boom um, and a lot of people from other place were, uh, places were moving to Nigeria. As the gift and the curse, the oil boom. The gift and the curse, exactly. And so my dad got a job teaching, at, uh, teaching English at Bayero University in Kano. And he moved, he, he, he moved the family there. And so I did all my primary education in Kano. And then we went home to visit my, uh, to visit home. Uh, we, we went back home and uh, to visit uh, our relatives in Northern Ghana in So wait, when, when was the first time you actually visited Ghana for the first time? Did you do all your, your primary education? You were about what, eight, nine, 10 before you, you step, set foot in Ghana? I was 11 when I first, uh, when we first uh, visited. And so the next, the following year when I finished primary school, uh, they decided to send me back home to Northern Ghana for boarding a secondary school. So I'd, I did my O-levels in Northern Ghana, and then I moved to Accra to do my, uh, my A-levels. Um, and so while I was doing my O-levels, you, you know, my mom and dad are in Nigeria, my siblings are with them in Nigeria. Well, your I parents with... stayed back in Nigeria. Yes, yes, my parents stayed back in Nigeria, um, and I went back home to Ghana. And, and it, it was an interesting experience because people ask me now in the United States if I miss home um, or what the experience was like. And, you know, at 12, I went back home. I didn't speak the language. I didn't really know my relatives. Um, I was sort of, I had to figure things out for myself. Was that uh, intentional so, on your parents' side that they wanted you to go back to absorb the culture or? It, it, it was, it was instigated by my grandfather. He said, you know, when we went, when, when we went in 85, he said, Brian is the first, the first born son of his generation of the family. Um, he's the first you know the first male of his generation of the family he has to he has to learn the culture he has to know the traditions and whatnot you need to send him home <laughs> so you need to send him home to come and learn and so when, when the following year when I was ready for secondary school um, that's how I wound up going back home to Ghana well, that's pretty interesting. So, you know, you, you you are in all these places, like it's it's almost like I remember like growing up in a military household, but we never stuck to one city. Like we probably moved like 15 times in like 13 years or something. So um, you schooling, primary school in Nigeria, O-levels, Northern Ghana, A-levels in Accra, like you're always moving around all these different regions with like its own unique cultures. Did you like feel like an outsider? Like what was like? What, you know, it's, you... it's, 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 uh, go ahead, uh, go ahead. No, I just wanted to ask, like, you know, being a young boy, like, did you feel ostracized in a way, always like a sore thumb sticking out, like, in all these places you were going to? I don't know if I would say that at the time I felt ostracized. I definitely felt like an outsider, right? So, for example, when I went to secondary school, I didn't even speak the language, right? That was home, but I didn't speak the language. I had to learn. And what's what I began to be, to get good at doing is making myself at home uh, wherever I find 
uh, where, wherever I happen to find myself. And, and I use, I've, I've taken to using the statement that wherever I find myself is home. You know, so when I'm in Nigeria, Nigeria is home. When I'm in Ghana, Ghana is home. When I'm in the U.S., the U.S. is home. Um, and, I, and I just took to thinking about home in that way, wherever I find myself and where there are people around me who are welcoming and who accept me. That's that's what I think of as home. But the, the, what, what one interesting thing happened when I first uh, I went to secondary school. Um, as one of the subjects in secondary school, we had to study a Ghanaian language. And where I come from in northern Ghana, that language is Dagari. And uh, that's the language, language? Dagari. Dagari. Yes. Yes. Okay. So, so at home in the village with my grandfather and my relatives, that's what we spoke, right? We, we speak Dagari. Uh, but, I, but like I said, I didn't speak the language. But then I had to study it in school. And for some reason, I think it was that I, I had extra motivation to do well in that subject. I was topping my class. I was topping, I was beating everyone else in Dagari in school. And I remember one day the teacher was, the teacher was surprised. He was, like, Brian doesn't even speak the language. How is he getting 100% and coming first in this subject when the rest of you are fluent? When the rest of you are fluent? I'm intrigued myself. How do you do that? <laughs> Was there a formula? What, what I, happened? I have, I have no idea. I just remember that I sat there and I was like, I've got to learn this thing. I've got to learn this thing. And I think it was uh, like I'm saying, I think the motivation was that when I went home during vacation, I wanted to be able to speak to speak to my relatives. Um, that that's the only explanation I can think. Oh, that's interesting. Okay, having lived in like Nigeria and also like lived in Ghana, like home is you know Nigeria, Ghana slash the U.S. Like, I mean, let's get into the jollof conversation for two seconds. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Let me see where home is really for you. So. <laughs> You have to now on record because I'm recording this. <laughs> Which jollof? <laughs> exactly. See this Nigerian. So we can play this, this thing back. See this Nigerian man trying to get me in trouble. See this Nigerian. No, you have to answer. <laughs> I mean, you grew up on Nigerian jollof. You know, you, you went to Ghana, had some Ghanaian jollof. You know. You, so, you know. So here, so here's the thing. I can cook either type of jollof. I make it mean. I make it mean. Nigerian party uh, jollof. I make a mean uh, Ghanaian uh, jollof. I really think it depends on, it, re it really depends on the individual. I think if you want a jollof that has more spice, more flavor, more kick to it, I tend to find that with Nigerian jollof. I think if you're looking for a jollof that is easier on the palate, not as spicy, uh, and, and, and generally, I think we're, we can agree that just generally speaking, Nigerian foods tend to be a little on the spicier side than Ghanaian foods. So if you're looking for something that's more mellow, um, then maybe a Ghanaian uh, jollof is more your... It's more yours. Spoken, spoken like a true entrepreneur. Doesn't want to alienate the audience. But, <laughs> <laughs> but it's all good. I'll give you a pass on that one. <laughs> we'll move ahead. I'll give you a pass on that one. 
um, I, I'm really intrigued about your 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 time, you know, growing up with your grandfather. Like, you know, the, the little time I spent with my grandfather on my maternal side, like it's just a different relationship with your grandfather than your parents, like with your mom and dad, right? Like there's a certain like wisdom and, you know, there, there are certain lessons, especially if you're African, if you have like a, a Nigerian or a Ghanaian or, you know, any type of African, you know, grandparent and you, you spend some time with that person there, are just a bunch of things like you get to learn. Like my grandfather was a communications officer in the Nigerian Air Force. Uh, he was actually my father's boss. So my, my father dated his daughter. Uh, but there were just all these things I had learned from him. You had grown up in this academic environment. You know, your parents were teachers in Bayero University. I would imagine you guys lived within the confines of the university. Yeah, the campus. When you, yeah. yeah, when you went to live with your grandfather, like he was a farmer. So like what were some of the lessons you picked up from him along the way while you were, you know, completing your old levels and how was that difference for you moving from like an academic institution to like farm life pretty much you know i i, I am in hindsight i am really grateful for the you know six years or so that i spent you know being in secondary school and spending my vacations with my grandfather he died in he died in 96 about a year before i left to um to come to the united states to go to college and you know what what i think I think the the sentiment that you're conveying is exactly right that you learn you learn things that you probably or at least for people in our generation I think you learn things from your grandparents that your parents have no way of teaching you right so for example my grandfather was a peasant farmer um, if he if he didn't work he didn't he wouldn't eat right if if you don't if you don't go to the farm and do the backbreaking work of farming you're just not going to eat. On top of that, I, I, I learned uh, from living at home with him. When he was a young man, he developed a case of, uh, of, of rheumatoid arthritis, a, a very, very debilitating case. And I think it might have been even more than that, because ultimately he wound up with a hunchback. So not only is he not only is he a peasant farmer who every day is doing this backbreaking work for like, you know, 10, 12, 10, 12 hours a day, but on top of it, he has this, this disability, which puts him at a disadvantage. Oh, wait, he was still going on farming even with his condition? Yeah, 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 yeah. He yeah. had to, yeah. I guess. Yeah, 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 he had no choice. Actually, he developed it as a very young man. He, ha he left, I I'll tell you a bit of the background. He left home planning to move to southern Ghana to work in the mines. And then and then I think this, the Second World War uh, broke out. His older brother got conscripted into the army and was sent, and was sent abroad to North Africa to fight on behalf of the Allies. So they sent word to him that he couldn't he couldn't go down south. He had to come back because their parents had had passed away not too long ago. So he had to come back home to take care of his siblings. During that uh, that episode, he fell sick, developed a hunchback, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But since there was no one to take care of his siblings, it fell on him. <laughs> it fell on him to take care of his siblings. So for as long as I knew him from my infancy, he had a hunchback continued farming and what I never heard him complain once I never heard him complain I never heard him you know like woe is me why did this you know fate bef befall me and so every morning he would be up before sunrise he would say his prayers um he would crack the whip and get us all ready to go to the farm he would outwork he would outwork almost everyone on the farm uh he'd come back home he'd work in the evening um unlike a lot of his peers he was very he ensured that 
that every uh, male member of his family knew how to cook. He ensured that we wow. helped. He ensured and that this, we helped. This was way back when, in this the is, 80s, this early is, 90s? Yeah, uh, yeah. This is, you know, he ensured he would make sure that we would help with sweeping, with cooking, <laughs> with doing the dishes, all the work that you would traditionally think of as being uh, women's work. He ensured that we had a hand in, do, in doing it. And, and so basically what I took from him was, you know, you never have a reason to complain, right? Instead of complaining, just use the resources that you have, use the gifts that God has blessed you with and, and, and use those to, to make a difference. And, and, and that has really, it, it, it really left an imprint on me. I mean, during the time I stayed with him, I began to have seizures and I started having, I became epileptic and no one, the, the doctors could not figure out what was going on. Uh, did and you have the, those in Nigeria? It's just when you moved to Ghana. No, it was just, it's interesting. It's just when I started a secondary school at home. Now, my mom tells me I had seizures as an infant and then they just, and then they stopped. And since no one could figure out what was going on, they just said, well, you know, sometimes this happens. <laughs> Infants have seizures and then the seizures just stop. He seems fine. And then they started again when I was in secondary school, right at the beginning of secondary school. And, the, and medication wasn't doing much to help. Fortunately, they would happen maybe once every three months. It wasn't the sort where I was having a seizure every day. It was, was spaced out. And, you know, but the lesson I took from my grandfather was instead of complaining and feeling sorry for myself, like, just get on with it, right? Just get on with it. Find a way to manage your life around this condition that you now have. And uh, don't don't feel sorry. <laughs> don't, don't spend any time feeling sorry for yourself. Wow. That's like learning resilience from, like, your grandfather. It's like, you know, you're in this not strange place, like your family is there, but you're in this place, different place where you didn't grow up. You're in a boarding school environment, which can be different, I'm sure. There, that comes with its own challenges. And on top of that, you had these conditions where you, you were still pushing through and still, like, being the top of your classes in languages or in a language that you didn't even, like, speak. And that just speaks to, like, maybe kind of, like, uh, the kind of cloth you're, you're, you're cut from and things like that. Did your grandfather support your education? Uh, did he try to also um, teach you about, you know, farming and things like that, a, bit, a little bit of both? Or how was that situation like? So he's an interest, he, he's an interesting character in the sense that uh, he, his name is Matthias and my son is named, my son is named after him. So Matthias is an interesting, actually, now that I mention it, his name is Matthias Kunwabong. And the name Kunwabong, which would have been my surname, there's a whole long story there, <laughs> but Kunwabong should have been my surname. And Kunwabong uh, literally translated means, uh, what is death? What is death or who fears or who fears death? Death, death, death. What is oh, death? D-E-A-T-H. -E who fears death? Death, yes. Who fears death? Like, in the face of something that's going to kill you, have no fear or something along those lines, right? Uh, uh, so, um, so he was, my family would have been a family of traditional priests 
of traditional healers. But then the Roman Catholic missionaries came, and when they got to our village, he was one of the first people to convert to Roman Catholicism. And so when the opportunity to send one of his siblings to presented itself, he put one of his, his younger brother through school, Gregory. And ultimately, Gregory became an archbishop. He's now an archbishop emeritus. Is it the same brother that fought in the war or a different one? No, no, a, a younger brother. So their older brother, Emmanuel, went to fight the war. And then and then Gregory, who is one of the younger brothers, is the one that he put through school. Like um, all these names is evident, like uh, the Catholic church really came into the community. Like Gregory, <laughs> exactly. Emmanuel, Emmanuel. Matthias, Matthias, changing exactly. last names to our Valentine, <laughs> Valentine. Exactly. Exactly. Benjamin, David. Oh, uh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's a very strong Catholic. Did, did that also contribute to how, uh, I don't want to say progressive, but did that also contribute to your, your grandfather's thinking, you know, making sure that his male grandchildren knew how to cook and things like that? Or that was like separate from any kind of teachings of the Catholic Church and was just like his own way of doing things back then? I think I think it's a mixture. I think it's a mixture of being more enlightened than his peers. But I also think just personality-wise, um, uh, it, 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 his personality made it so that when you put the influence of Catholicism on top of that, he, he was more likely to be like, hey, you can't, um, you can't treat this as women's work. It's work that everyone has to partake in, right? So we all had to learn how to cook. We all had to learn how to keep the house and that sort of thing. Uh, but he put his brother through school. His, his younger brother eventually became a bishop and so he, he he was always supportive of people going to school and learning in fact one of the things that I found interesting was that even though he wasn't he didn't go to school himself sometimes he would engage me in conversations about what I, what I was learning in school um, and once in a while when I complained about well you know my peers my classmates who are spending their vacation in the city they're probably studying and whatnot he would encourage me if I could find a way to make arrangements to study in the evenings to go ahead and do that. But but uh -huh. when but when so I was... that's how you did it. Your grandfather did all your assignments for you. No, the funny thing is I'd get back from the farm and I would be so tired that there's no way I was going to. There was no way I was going to do any studying. So basically the way I treated it was when I'm in school, I work as hard as I can. And when I go to the village, I just focus on, on, uh, on, on farming in the, in the village. There's one interesting lesson I learned from him, which is uh, this, this incident really drove it home for me. But there was one, there was one day during one of my vacation when I just rebelled and I was just like, I'm not going to the farm. How old were you? I was maybe 16. I okay. think maybe 16. I rebelled. I'm not going to the farm. I told him I wasn't going to the farm and I went off and, and was idling about in the in the market, in the market. So he he didn't, you know, he didn't say anything. He went to the farm, he came back. When he came home, I, you know, greeted him and we sat down, pretended like nothing, <laughs> pretended like nothing had happened. And he's a strict disciplinarian, which is where my dad gets it from. And so I was like, oh wow, maybe I got away with this. <laughs> maybe I'm actually yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> going, maybe he's actually going to let this slide. 
Yeah, right. Then, then the time to go back to school came. And the way things worked in the village at the time is that a market truck, uh, one of these market trucks, would come once a day. And so school was going to reopen on a day when the market truck not come by. And so the day the market truck was coming, uh, I went to him and I was like, hey, you know, school is reopening. I need to get going, et cetera, et cetera. And he said, well, you know, the way I, I earned the pocket money to give you when you through the farm. Farm, and you don't want you don't want to farm. So I have no pocket money. Ooh. I have no pocket money to give. Granddad me. flipped it. So, so 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 we couldn't get on the we couldn't get on the market truck. That meant that the following day, my cousin and I had to take bikes to carry our our bags because the next place where we could catch a truck was twelve miles away. So we rode bikes, the bikes like bicycles. Yeah, yeah, bicycles. So we so we put we we put the we we put our stuff on the back of the bikes. We rode together. We left them in a village called Kalio, which is twelve miles away. Then we went back to the village because those weren't our bicycles, right? I, I I borrowed my uncle's, but yeah. So we returned the bicycles. Then the following day we walked. The following day we walked. He, here is the trick. Just before we set out to walk, I went to him to say goodbye. We're walking to go catch the truck in Kalioran. And he said, oh, here is your pocket money for, <laughs> here is your pocket money. He said, I just wanted to teach you a lesson. You a lesson. <laughs> he said, I just wanted to teach you a lesson. Wow, wow. You know, there's something, there's something, there's an <laughs> adage where I come from, like what the elders can see sitting down, the young people can see standing up. So <laughs> that's probably his way of teaching. And I'm sure you learned that lesson that, hey, that, you know, you have to appreciate, you know, the hard work of, you know, whoever is providing for you and things like that. It's something, it's something I have never forgot. Uh, because that 12 mile walk was no joke. <laughs> that 12 mile walk was no joke. <laughs> man, shout out to granddad Matthias, man. <laughs> Gangster. <laughs> Gangster. Okay, so eventually, um, you know, you you went for your A-levels in a crowd boarding school. You ended up moving to the U.S. And this was like in the mid-90s, right? You got a scholarship to attend Connecticut College. Like, in the mid-90s, like, moving to the U.S. wasn't as popular as it is now. Like, I went to school in the U.S. by, I came in, like, 2017, right, for, for my master's. So it's like, there was Google Maps, there was Airbnb, there was Uber, there's the internet, there's all these things. But, like, in the mid mid-90s, like, how daunting was that whole process to move to the U.S.? I know your parents were in academia, maybe probably would have helped you, but how did you even fathom the thoughts that, hey, you know, I want to school outside of Ghana or Nigeria, you know, outside of West Africa? How did the U.S. land on your radar, and how did you manage to get the application through to get into Connecticut College? So, we, we, we have to go back a little bit. In the 1980s, um, I think it was maybe a year after my parents have had moved to BUK, Bayero University in Cannes. Um, an African-American, uh, the university hired an African-American lecturer, their economics uh, department. And when he arrived, he didn't know anyone, um, as my as my mom tells. When he arrived, he didn't know, he didn't know anyone. And uh, he fell ill. It was his first time in West Africa. He, he fell ill. And somehow, my mom and dad heard, oh, you know, there's a new lecturer who's been hired by the university. <laughs> He's 
homesick and he's he's sick in Daula Hotel in uh, in Kano. Uh, and my mom and dad are the sorts of people who open their home to strangers who are in. And so my mom says, you know, they went to pay him a visit. And the minute she saw him, she was like, yeah, he needs somebody to take care of him till he recovers. And so they were like, you, you can't stay in this hotel. Pack your stuff. Come uh, come live with us. So he lived with us. He lived with us for this six months. This must have been 1980s Nigeria. 19, yes, yes, now. yes. This 1980s, this 1980s Nigeria. So he lived with us for six months, became a member of the farm uh, uh, for all intents and purposes. Eventually, um, he he uh, got his own place. Uh, but, but, but like I said, he became a member of the family. In fact, many people used to confuse him with my dad. They were like, oh, is that your dad? And I'd be like, no, no, he's not. He's not my dad. Because <laughs> I'd be in the library. We'd be in the library uh, during weekends. Uh, I'd go and hang out in the library with him. And so he left eventually to come back to the United States to pursue his PhD. And so when I was finishing my O-levels and A-levels, he started planting the seed in my mind that perhaps I should consider going to the United States. But I really didn't think it was an option because at That's the time... That's interesting. So you guys were like writing letters back and forth? Yes, 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 yes. But at the time, I, I really wanted to... My plan was to study mathematics at either University of Ibadan or University of Ghana, Legon. That, that was my plan. Those but were top institutions back in the day. Yeah, but but as you also remember, Ghana and Nigeria have this habit of shutting universities down for for long periods of time. In fact, uh, when I was in when I was in upper sixth, I think the I think the universities in Ghana were closed for like eleven. So in the midst of that, I also discovered that some of my classmates were winning uh, scholarships and financial aid to study in the U.S. Now, some of them, it was easier for some of them because they were U.S. citizens, right? Their parents had studied in the U.S. They, they were born in the U.S. And so, for, and so for them, it was really just coming back home, so to speak. I wasn't a citizen, and I didn't think I could benefit from that. But I, the thought I thought I had was, if, the, if other people can win financial aid to go to school, if other people can win scholarships to go to school, I can probably, I can probably also win a scholarship to pay for my education. And so... Uh, the the advantage of having uh, Professor Ferdinand, uh, I refer to as my uncle, uh, the advantage of having him was he could suggest a number of institutions, right? So he said, at the time he was teaching at Connecticut College, he said, I have no idea, I have no idea uh, how admissions makes its, its decisions because they wouldn't talk to anyone about it and we have we have no influence on how they make the decisions but but i think they have one full scholarships for for an international student just one just one wow and so i said okay then i'll put connecticut college on my list right because at least if i get into connecticut college i know someone i know someone new london so then i discovered that they actually had two full scholarships for international students not not one <laughs> That's still not like, a lot. <laughs> I was like, I was like, oh my god, it's not one scholarship, it's two scholarships. 
scholarships. Uh, so I applied to nine schools. Connecticut College was one of them. I think I mentioned before we started recording that I applied to Carleton, uh, Carleton College in, in Minnesota. So I applied to nine schools. I uh, got waitlisted on three. Initially, I was waitlisted by Connecticut College. Then eventually, they gave me a full grant that paid for all four years of my undergrad. Wait, you, you got a scholarship even after getting waitlisted? Yeah, yeah, I came off the wait list. And it's in and it's interesting because like I said, initially they had two two scholarships, right? But the year I went, the year I matriculated, the president made a big push to increase the amount of financial aid for international students. And so I think the year that I matriculated, the number of full scholarships probably tripled or quadrupled. And and so I got one of those. I got one of those. That's that's how I because my parents would not we're not in a position to to contribute me meaningfully to paying my tuition and board so it was it was all financial aid right and why why you hear stories like this maybe this is why everyone hates gen z so much like if someone can like write letters back and forth and figure out how to get a full, full scholarship in like in a time of no google maps and anything and you know when they look at gen z oh you have all the tools available to you why are you not making this i guess each generation just tends to misunderstand the the next generation or whatnot. But yeah, yeah, eventually you got into Connecticut College and you became what DJ Brian at some point. <laughs> So, 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 so this is where the Nigerian in me comes out, right? This is where the Nigerian in me comes out. But I'm on campus, freshman year, I decide I really need to focus on my grades. So I'm not going to do anything, no work, no nothing. Um, but then, you know, some of freshman years approaching, I have absolutely no money. I'm like, man, I need to earn some pocket money. So I start inquiring about jobs on campus. And I realized... If you work for the physics department, they'll pay you $7.25 an hour. Highest paying job on campus. And I, I signed up to work for the chair of the physics department. The jobs are attracting you, by the way. Physics department, studying mathematics <laughs> and University of Ibadan. Like, what if, kind of... Like, Why are you the class nerd? If, <laughs> if, you, if, you, if, you work, if you work for the math department, they'll pay you $5.25 an hour. If you work uh, campus safety, it's like $5.75. If you work in the kitchen... And dining services is like five fifty. Then I realized that one of my friends, we lived on the same floor in the dorm. He was a DJ. He did. He DJed at the campus radio station and he DJed party. I was like, Craig, how much do you get paid for DJing a party? I was like, oh, I don't know, two hundred dollars for four hours of work. Three hundred dollars. Mm, fifty bucks an hour. I was like, fifty bucks an hour. He said yes. I was like, oh boy, I need to teach myself how to DJ. <laughs> <laughs> I need to. Imagine. I need to, <laughs> I need no natural teach. talent. You just have to learn. <laughs> I need to teach myself. I need to teach myself how to DJ. But so, didn't you have to like buy equipment as well? Like how do you get the money for that? Let me finish the story now. Didn't I tell you there's a radio station on campus? Oh, yeah. You so did. some of my freshman year, I go to the radio station. I sign up. I get someone to agree to train. I get a show on the radio station playing reggae. By the time school reopens, in August, I'm like, okay, I need to become a campus DJ. So I go to campus services and I sign up as a campus DJ. And all my friends, everyone is curious to see how this is going to play out because they've never seen me. <laughs> DJing, I'm playing reggae music. <laughs> so 
obviously, like I said, I didn't have any money because I hadn't really been working. And so I said, I'm going to go around to students on campus. And anyone who talked to me, I'll be like, tell me your favorite CD. And on each CD, tell me your favorite song. So my first party, that's how I came up with my playlist. <laughs> I played the favorite songs from people who loaned me their CD. Um, and that's how that's how I started. That's how I started. Well, what about the technique, though? Like, the song arrangement is one thing, but, like, the te technique of, like, scratching, I guess you learned that at the radio station, right? I didn't really get into the scratching and whatnot because that wasn't my goal, right? My goal was for people to have a good time, for them to enjoy the party, and, to, and for me to get paid, right? So I didn't, I didn't worry that much about all the other stuff. Okay, that... so just played popular songs. Just... Just, just, just play music that will get the party going. Well, what are some other tricks? Because DJs are very, uh, how would I put this? Like they know how to read energy. You know, they know how to pick up on little cues. That I could do very, that like, I could do very, very. What well. tricks could you wear? Like shouting out, "Oh, all the girls wave your hands!" Like no, no, no. I, I wasn't doing, I wasn't doing that. In, in, in a sense, I'd say I'm unconventional. So I think maybe if I have an advantage. Uh, at that time, it was that I really love to dance. Like I really, really love to dance. And so, when uh, whenever I'm DJing, I'm saying to myself, if I were on the dance floor right now, what sequence of songs would make me would make me go wild? Right, Put like yourself in your customer's shoes. Right, like what sequence of songs would absolutely ensure that I'm not going anywhere? I'm staying on this dance floor. But didn't your culture affect that? Because being like African, like maybe. Maybe you have like a different music taste or something like that. Like how how did you manage to like? And this was I your first year, right? So it's not like it, you had it, it was my, it, or something. It, it was my sophomore year. I actually think it was a plus because I'm I'm also quite competitive. And so when I wasn't DJing, I would go and listen to what other DJs were playing. And it quickly it quickly got to the point where I could almost predict what some of my competitors would play. Right? Like if you've attended one of their parties you've basically attended every one of their parties because oh, they're going to... So you to, came with a fresh going, mix, a different I came with I came with a completely different... I came, like, if you came to Brian's party, you would hear every type of music here, you know, uh, uh, reggaeton, bachata, merengue, salsa, reggae, calypso. You would hear Afro beats. You'd hear music from Europe. You'd hear international hits. You'd hear hip-hop. You'd hear... That's a diverse oh. party. You know, yes. now that you mention it, you know, that makes a lot of sense because I lived in DC, right? And in, in DC, what, what street was it where all the clubs were? I think it was U Street or something like they were right next to each other, but you have the Latino club, the white club, maybe the African club would be down the streets, you know, the club that is playing like EDM. Like, I don't know why, like, why can't we just all be in one building and like they just play maybe 30 minutes of this, 30 minutes of that? Like, everyone like just has a good time. Like, I, I never understood why some people would just say, oh, they're an EDM DJ or like an African. Uh, that was, that was my formula so every 15 to 20 minutes i'd switching i'd, I'd switch things up Every 15 to 20 minutes, I'd switch, I'd switch things up, right? So I, I, I'll play a reggae set for like 15 minutes, then I'll play a hip-hop set, then I'll play a soca set, then I'll play... Um, um, and, and, and I found that I found that, that worked. I mean, there was one year, that there was one year in which I basically run all the other DJs out of town. So you were getting which, all the 200 which was, which was completely <laughs> was, was completely fine by was completely fine by me. I run all of them out of town. Right, and this is while you were doing, like, 
what what were you studying in in college, by the way? I I, I was a I was a mathematics and physics uh, double major. Can you imagine? <laughs> a mathematics and physics double major who liked to dance and was also the college DJ. You can't you else. can't even write this script if you were if you were a script writer or something. Like I I, I also did a radio show. Uh, I I I stuck with the radio station. I did the radio show. Right, right. So and, typically, and, and so, like, and so the way to think about it is that you know sort of like I described when I was in secondary school in the village, right? The DJing to me was work, right? It was it was work. It was also my stress uh, relief. And when I wasn't doing that kind of work, then my focus was entirely on 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 books and studying for right. class and whatnot. So I mean, it sounds like a typical immigrant student. Like you know, I remember when I was in college, like I was doing a million and one things myself. Like you would see, like our, our first semester, uh, we're always the first to pretty much have classes in the business school because the business school's classes start at eight where the first like the undergraduates will have classes later in the evening but the grad students will be like early in the day so 8 a.m we're there and most people who come from 8 a.m you you would see that all oh, these guys just like rolled out of bed right because they'll be like with sweatpants they'll like, take their classes from 8 a.m to like maybe 11 noonish and like go back home go sleep or something like but the international student is going to like his campus job recording the podcast doing this going to do like a, a night shift somewhere that's, catching the bus yeah did you have any culture shock what are some of the culture shocks you had when you came to connecticut like i came to school when the internet was prevalent right so there are a lot of things i had known by know when i started to drive to kind of like get used to the traffic lights here in the u.s was pretty strange because back home if a traffic light turns green green or if it's uh you know, a, a signal turns green, you go immediately, right? But in the U.S., even when a signal turns green, you still have to wait if you're turning left to see that all the cars coming from the opposite direction pass you and there's no pedestrian before you then go. So that was like a very, a very weird culture shock for me. What were some of the culture shocks you had moving to Connecticut? I'd say if there was culture shock, it was it was the food. The food, it took me a while to adjust to the food. And even now, I don't know if I've adjusted completely. Any opportunity <laughs> I mean, it's I been get, 20 I'm years. cooking. <laughs> Any opportunity I get, I'm cooking a goosey and bitter leaf or nice. uh, some other, or, or banga, or banga soup, or some other, <laughs> some other soup like that. Nice. Do your uh, kids participate? Uh, so, so my son, my son lives with his mom and his stepdad, with my ex-wife and his stepdad in uh, in, in in Connecticut. Um, uh, yeah, when he's here, uh, uh, he eats he eats African food when I cook it. So, um, so so food was food took some getting used to. Uh, I'll tell you a funny story. At home, uh, university students are not typically expected to do homework. Um, what you do know, you mean? In, in Ghana and Nigeria. Oh, and university got it. students, you, right, right, you right, typically right. don't get uh, like projects and stuff. Yes, yes, you typically don't turn in homework. I remember my first week, I didn't realize that oh, I was supposed to turn in homework until uh, so that took some getting used to, but I adjusted quickly. Originally, I wanted to study computer science. I didn't realize that it's difficult to study com computer science if you've never actually used a computer. Um, and so I think I Took, I took two programming classes my freshman year uh, in uh, uh, successive uh, semesters, one each semester, and then I decided to abandon computer science. In hindsight, I wish I hadn't abandoned computer science because I think it would have been... Uh, uh, so 
Yeah, I think those are the things. Obviously, the weather. The weather is still something I've not adjusted to. Um, In Connecticut weather. Yeah, I can yeah, imagine. The cold, the cold weather. Each each winter, I'm like, Jesus Christ, what's this? <laughs> <laughs> right, 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 right. I mean, the computer science thing, I read an article on, was it Wired or... No, I said wired. One of these tech crunch or something that, you know, that it's like the new age of like uh, people working in, you know, the computer industry or startup space is more like non-computer science related degree because it, it, like it's almost like engineers think a certain way mm -hmm. and like it benefits you if you understand a little bit of engineering, but you have a background in something else. Like it can be liberal arts or, you know, business or marketing or whatever. And you just understand how to talk that tech language that, but if you've like lived all your, your, your years in computer science and have been coding since 13, that, that the tech industry is like clamoring for a more broader skill set than that mm -hmm. in today's world. So maybe, uh, you know, in the end, you know, it'll all work out. And obviously we'll talk about what you're doing on the business side with Worldwide Supply Chain Federation and all that. But let me quickly touch on what happened after you graduated. Like what happened after you graduated from Connecticut College? So I finished, I uh, graduated Connecticut College. Um, and then I, I got a job as an actuary, as an actuarial analyst. I mean, what could be better? Yeah, yeah, at a retirement uh, benefits consulting firm at Watson White Worldwide. Uh, I, I entered the actuary, their retirement actuarial uh, training pr program. And my thinking was, what could be better than going to work during the day and then being expected to study math at night and take and take and take actuarial exams? The interesting thing about the actuarial exams is that they are incredibly difficult. They are incredibly difficult. And so I wasn't I wasn't passing them as quickly as I should. Is it kind of like how it works on Wall Street where they expect you to take your series six and seven and all that stuff in your first year or whatever? Kind of, but anyone who has taken actuarial exams would be very offended oh. if you put oh, if you put bad. if you put actuarial <laughs> exams sorry. if you put actuarial exams and series six and seven wow. on the well, same. I'm sorry, same. guys. <laughs> <laughs> like the, the anyone would be highly offended. Uh, think of think of the actuarial exams as being the equivalent of getting a master's degree in mathematics, and some of and some of the material is even more complex, more involved. Than Interesting. That. Just to, I, I guess it makes sense because we have a lot of physics majors. Like one of the most needed skills, like is like risk management, right? On Wall Street after the whole financial crisis, so. And all the people working in risk management are like physics majors. That's so. what actuaries, that's all that actuaries do. They manage risk. Yeah, 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 yeah. So did that for a while. It wasn't working out. And so I left. In hindsight, I think uh, that was the best thing that could have happened because they defined... But you left voluntarily? Did you like sense on the horizon that you were going to get kicked out and you preempted that or you got something better? No, we had a conversation. It was like, this isn't... I'm not happy. I'm not enjoying the work. I'm not passing the exams. You know, my employer is not happy that I'm not passing the exams as quick as quickly as they would like. Uh, let's part ways. And then four months after I left Watson Wyatt, uh, I was job hunting and I got a job at UBS. Their head of global diversity, the group head of diversity, needed a data analyst and, and, and researcher. 
um, she had had a difficult time uh, finding someone who would stay in the in the position over the course of two years. She had gone through a lot of people, and I said, "This this is the sort of thing I love to do." And so I said to her, "If, if you employ me, I can assure you, I can assure you that there'll be that there'll be stability. This is something you won't have to worry about." Right? She was very worried about uh, the quality of analysis and what. Wait, did you say head of diversity? Yeah, yeah, group head of the group head of. Uh, wow, diversity. I thought I thought diversity heads were just like a 2010 thing. Like they were no, that early. No, 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 2000. This was April 2004 when I joined. Interesting. Well, they and, went and to, forward thinking then. Yeah, and to give you to give you a sense of the responsibility she had, she she met with the group CEO in Switzerland once a quarter. She met with the group executive board once a quarter. Met with the group managing board once a quarter, and that's the group. The group managing board is like the board of directors. Met with the heads of each major business in UBS once a quarter. Uh, met Met with the head of each region like once a quarter, and I was her only analyst. Wow. I was I was responsible for all I was responsible for all the research and analysis that she took to these meetings. And, and, that and, must and have that's been why... a workload. And she was working out of different time zones, so you might have been awake at on at different times and things I, like I, that. There was one time. There was one time someone in Zurich called, uh, sent an email. Uh, to me, and I responded immediately. And he called my desk. He was like, "I'm confused. How are you answering my email? How wait, are you, you answering my?" Email? Actually, at the office. At I, was at the office. I was at the office. Wow. And this was still in Connecticut, right? <laughs> this was in Stanford. Okay, this so this is a hedge fund Connecticut. territory. So yeah. everyone is awake at one a.m. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't strange. <laughs> Wow, that that's very interesting. Like you know, to to really like be that number cruncher that early in your career. Like obviously you enjoyed it, but how did that transition into what you're doing now? You, you seem to be this person who's so immersed in you know supply chain. Like you know, you have uh, you started the the like you're one of the starters of like New York so supply chain meetup. You guys have what's called like the Worldwide Supply Chain Federation now. Uh, refashioned ventures, you know, investing in supply chain startups. Like how did you get into from like the, the the glorified shiny actuarial analyst hedge fund territory Stanford Connecticut to like the back office supply chain Suez canal clog pipes toilet paper and, and, COVID and world so I think if there's something I would say if I could describe something unique about I think from as early as I can remember I've always had a nose for gathering information and connecting dots between things. And so, for example, you know, I told you I was I was uh, in secondary school, gathered bits of information from different places. And I said, you, you know what, I need to apply to colleges in the U.S. That's how I landed in the U.S. Then I get to Connecticut College. I'm trying to find, I'm trying to earn my pocket money, right? Because my financial aid took care of tuition and room and board, uh, but I needed to take care of my own living expenses. And I ask around, uh, talk to different people. That's how I discovered that being a DJ is the most profitable job on campus. 
you know so then next thing you know i start i start djing uh you, you know then i ask around uh uh because it wasn't t- uh, typical uh for people to go into actuarial science from a liberal arts uh, college that's how i landed at watson wyatt again at ubs you know i was job hunting uh the People thought, oh, go into back office operations in fixed income, go into back office operations in equities and whatnot. But then I talked to different people, and that's how I got the interview with the head of group diversity at UBS. And I was like, that is going to give me more responsibility than I would have if I was in back office operations. Right. In fixed you were data driven. Um, yes. Making yes. Decisions. Uh, so, right, right. So, what she, what she needs uh, plays to my strengths. But I get to work for someone who's like meeting the CEO four times a year and whatnot, and taking my work directly to those to those places. So that that has always been the case. And um, and the way I, I found myself where I am now is also a similar experience. In 2008, I had been let go from Lehman Brothers. So I left UBS in 2007, went to Lehman Brothers, finished uh, my MBA. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> I finished my MBA at NYU as a part. I did the part-time uh, program in 2008. So I had been let go from Lima, and I was job hunting. And I got an email from a, a recruiter uh, at Vonage in New Jersey who said, "Hey, I'm trying to fill an interesting job. I saw your profile online. I think you'll be a perfect fit for the job. Do you want to talk?" And so again. You know, I wasn't sure what this opportunity was, but I said, yeah, sure, let's talk. I'm I'm unemployed. I should talk to anyone who wants to talk to me. And it turns out in the long run that the founder of Vonage, a gentleman by the name of Jeffrey Citron, his family office was looking to hire uh, someone. And the family office at the time had one employee, you know, the chief financial office of the family of, of, uh, of the CFO of the family office. And they were looking for someone to start an initiative to do more direct investing uh, through the family office. And it wasn't a very well-defined, like the, the, there wasn't a crystal clear job description, right? This wasn't, a, this wasn't a position that had existed in the past. Like I said, was the second employee at the family office. So it was more like, this is what we want to do. But pretty much the person that comes in is going to define what this becomes. And so initially, when we had the conversations, I didn't understand what the opportunity was. But as I thought about it and we talked more and more, I was like, wow, this is precisely what I want to do, right? I want to do equity research. I want to do investing. I want to do investment management. There's an opportunity to do that. I didn't think I'd get the job because, as I've told you, my work experience, up to that point, my work experience was not managing investments, right? I I, I didn't think that if you looked at my resume it screamed this is the guy that you should hire to come in <laughs> to come and start a direct investing program in your in your multi-million dollar uh, family office uh, but to my surprise uh, how asked, large was the fund that you guys were managing ultimately when we when we built uh, KEC ventures the family office deployed you know 35 million dollars in fund one 63 million dollars in fund two um, and if you count a number of um, of SBVs, it's easily a hundred million dollar plus of of, of AUM uh, 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 dedicated to the venture fund. So I joined I joined the family office as a second employee in two thousand and eight. 
2008 through, through 2010, I was focused on two turnaround assignments. Uh, one was a fine dining restaurant company. The other was a private jet company. It was a lot of work. Wow, that's a very diversified. <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was an incredible amount of work, but I learned so much about building businesses, managing companies, and so on and so forth. The, the two companies combined about 650 employees, uh, combined revenues about $50 million across the two companies. It, was, it consumed all my time till about mid-2010. And then mid-2010, uh, the family office uh, decided to establish a venture fund, a KEC venture. So then we recruited Jeffrey Parkinson, uh, uh, a good friend of mine, who's, I think his, he and his family have moved back to Colorado. And so did, uh, stayed at KEC Ventures till 2018, um, when uh, 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 the team dispersed to do different things, and I decided to team up with my co-founder, Lisa, to form a Refashioned Ventures. And the thesis for Refashioned came to me while I was at KEC Ventures. It got to the point where we decided as individual members of the team to pick areas to specialize in. And the more work I did with some coincidences, again, just like reading, looking at trends, noticing trends, taking in the information, synthesizing it and trying to make sense of it. It occurred to me that supply chain is where the opportunity is going to be because that's where the biggest problems we need to solve are. And so that's, that's the genesis for the thesis, the investment thesis. It's interesting. Like, I have a few questions. First things first, like when you were working for the predecessor to KAC, that was more, I don't know if I'll, I'll call it private equity. Like, you guys were investing in, like, traditional businesses like restaurants, private jet companies. What was the most important thing in in managing those businesses? What would you say? I know people always give that generic answer, like the people or things like that. But if you if you say, like, one specific thing that that, that made it easier to, to, to grow those businesses or to make those businesses successful, what would you say is important to focus on? Is it different with every business or have you come to realize that, oh, you know, when you pay attention to the data or maybe pay attention to the people or pay attention to the overall macroeconomic environment, like what were, what was the, the single most important thing you think, uh, across those businesses, a common thing that, that led to, you know, successes? So, the context, I think a context is important, right? 2008 to 2010, the economy was in a mess and then those companies were struggling, right? And so my job was almost to act as a management consultant to the executive teams and help them operationally work through that, tur uh, that turbulence. Uh, we we couldn't take a we couldn't go and take a loan for from a bank to paper over the problems. We couldn't do any financial engineering. This was like actually go in and fix. Actually go in and work with them to fix the business. And so the thing that worked that I think worked in my favor. Um, and I don't know if it has to do with my personality, if it was just a coincidence. But when I first arrived, I said to myself, first six months, I'm going to do a lot of watching and learning. Um, I'm going to do a lot of watching and learning, get to know the people, et cetera. Six months in, then, then I can start like putting my hands into 
the things that they're doing. And so the first six months, I really just spent it learning, understanding how the businesses work, learning the industry and so on and so forth. And then after six months, I started to, to get more involved in the work. And, and I think what that enabled me to accomplish is that it gave me some credibility because at the time where I started seeking to make more contributions to the way that the executives were running the businesses, they knew that I had spent time learning from them, right? And, and, and then the thing I realized was that they had the answers. They just needed someone to synthesize what was going on and create an, and create an environment for them to think through the problems. Right, it's that, that there was never a situation where I suggested something they hadn't heard of before, hadn't contemplated briefly. They just needed, I just needed to say, okay, we're going, I'm going to come down. We're going to spend four hours each day over two days, so eight hours in total. And we're going to tackle this one strategic issue which you guys are having. And hopefully at the end of those two days, we'll have a, a plan of action, right? And so that I think is what is what made is what enabled them to make it through that turbulent that turbulent uh, uh, period. That there wasn't there wasn't any rocket science as far rocket as rocket science. Were those interactions always free of conflict? Like I can imagine, no, like an entrepreneur, no, no, no or a family no, business, no, they wouldn't they want like no, outside no, inputs or no, something. No, they weren't. They weren't free. They weren't free of conflict. They weren't free of conflict. The way the way you just talked about, like you know, I'll just go down and we'll sit for four hours. <laughs> I was like, if like I, entrepreneurs hate when you know investors interfere no, with their day-to-day -day no, operations. They weren't. They weren't. They weren't. They weren't free. They weren't free of conflict. And this is and this is where I I am grateful for the fact that I grew up in Nigeria. Uh, because I think if I were a hundred percent Ghanaian, I think I would have been less effective, you know. But the but the Nigerian in me, I would be like, oh, look, I really we don't know here. where you I, I really <laughs> don't know where you think you're going with this with this conflict. <laughs> but right. I guess I guess let's see what happens. <laughs> right, right, right. right. <laughs> you know, right. Shout out to Nigeria. Because <laughs> I think I I think sometimes when you're working through difficult problems, right? I think solving difficult problems and encountering conflict go hand in hand. And so if you're the sort of person who can't work through difficult emotions, anger, frustration, and all that sort of stuff, you'll never get to you'll never get to the the point where you've gotten past through all those emotions that everyone is feeling and you can now solve the problem, right? And and, and I had I, I had some practice with that at UBS as well. I mean Given that I was the only analyst, there were times where, given that I was the only data analyst on the team, but also I wasn't the most senior person on the team, there were times where I, I had to stand my ground. <laughs> I had to stand my ground <laughs> in the face of incoming fire from very senior, from very senior people. <laughs> and I'll be like, look, look, I've crunched, I've crunched the data. I'm standing by my work. If you've crunched your data and you've reached different conclusions, let's talk about it, but I'm standing by my work. So. Okay, that makes sense. That makes sense. Okay, so eventually like started refashion ventures uh, focusing on supply chain. How do you even start like a venture 
company. Is, is there a road show to pick up general partners who are just willing to give you money? How do you raise your first, your first fund? Do you start investing on the angel side before you even raise your fund? How does that work, like setting up a venture company, so, a venture capital company? So uh, just for the audience um, and, and for you as well, general partners are the people who run the fund day to day. Limited partners. Limited partners are the folks who invest who invest in the fund. And so I would say that there probably isn't a one size fits all answer as to how people get started uh, uh, launching a fund, right? The easiest way is you have some capital of your own, you start making some investments, and because you've made those angel investments that enables you to raise a fund from other people who like what you're doing and decide, hey, why don't we let, you know, Brian or Nosa uh, uh, manage uh, money on our, on our behalf as well, because he seems to know what he's doing. He seems to have access and so on and, and so forth. Um, yeah, yeah, track uh, track record. Um, and then in other instances, you know, if the if the fund has existed for a long time, then once in a while, they will go out and recruit new GPs to join the existing team. Uh, but that happens rarely, as you can imagine. When people get into the investment management business uh, and they're having success, they typically don't. They typically don't. Um, and then there are folks like me and Lisa where we don't come from great wealth uh, or any wealth at all for that matter. Uh, but we have a very strong we have a very strong view on an opportunity. And then you just really have to get scrappy and creative and find a way to make it happen if it's going to happen. And, and that's, the, that's the situation in which we are. So uh, what we're doing right now is uh, uh, launching a rolling fund on AngelList. It allows us to bring in accredited investors at much lower ticket sizes than would typically be necessary for a traditional fund. Um, it's also appetizing to people who want some consistency to how capital is called, right? So it's a subscription model. In our case, you subscribe for four quarters or eight quarters to begin with. Um, uh, it's $25,000 a year. So the, the capital is called once a quarter, 6,250 a quarter. And then that allows us, that's going to enable us to start making a couple of small investments. Based on some conversations we had, we started having last year and gave in, uh, in uh, not this 2021, yeah. So in 2019 and 2020, based on conversations we started having in 2019 and 2020, I think once we've made a few investments, there's a chance that we can go back to speaking with some institutions about raising a traditional fund. Um, who knows how big that traditional fund will be? Um, uh, and and you know we'll build we'll build on that. It's like building. It's, it's like putting up a building. You you do it one brick one brick at a time. So we're 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 at the very early stage. This is square one, so to speak. Well, that's that's pretty interesting. And shout out to Angel List for you know, <laughs> like everywhere I go to, every podcast I listen to, like everyone is talking about Angel List. So shout out to Naval and all those guys, like for making things easier for investors. Like, what's kind of like your your average 
ticket size? What are some of the few companies you've invested in that you're kind of like excited about? Like I said, it's it's the it's literally day zero or day one. It's literally day zero or day one. We did our first close. We did our first close on the first of July, um, and we're now just doing diligence with some companies um, to potentially make investments in them. Uh, uh, so I can't talk about specific companies uh, till we've closed the investment. But basically, the way we're thinking about the about the opportunity is that um, so given the stresses that we're putting on the world's resources, how we make things, how we consume things, you know, how we transport things, how we store things uh, is going to change. And I think the pandemic has demonstrated to all of us just how critical supply chains are. Um, in 2019, when we're talking to people about supply chain technology, you know, was, what's that? Why does anyone care about supply chains? Isn't that very boring? Isn't that, you know, archaic? Why is that an interesting place in uh, area in which to build a venture fund? And then obviously the pandemic happened and now you can't, turn around without hearing someone talk about, about supply chains. But then there's, there, there's another issue that I think is related, and this is the issue of climate change, right? So when I say that, I think, when I tell people I think supply chain is the biggest opportunity around, they, you know, they'll often say, but what about climate change? Isn't that a bigger opportunity? And I think the two, the, the two are directly linked. Right. So if you agree that human activity is causing climate change and you understand that all human activity is driven by supply chain, then you understand the correlation between how we operate man-made supply chains and climate change. Right. And, and so that's how we think about it. We, we think about it in four buckets. So one is next generation logistics. That's really the sets of technologies and innovations that you know enable us to change how we move things and people around. Um, data and decision analytics, which is really the use of machine learning and um, and AI to enable people make decisions, uh, to enable machines and people to make better decisions. Uh, advanced uh, manufacturing which is really now that we can't make everything in China and ship it across the oceans uh, to other parts of the world, how are we going to, to manufacture the things that we need? And then advanced materials, which is really this idea that the way we've been consuming raw materials on the earth is unsustainable. And so we have to rethink what that means in, in, in the future. Um, so, so, so any startups that fit any one of those four buckets, uh, especially if they're using software in a substantial way in what they do, is a startup that we're interested in. Wow, that, that's a very interesting thesis and a very like interesting way to look at the problem. While others look at it like a oh, traditional boring industry while supply chain, you are looking at the opportunity on how supply chain can change and the, the economic opportunity to see supply chain change in the future. Wow, you've really like come a long way from, you know, Bayero and... Uh, <laughs> And, you know, your grandfather's farmer and walking 12 miles to, to school and all that good stuff. What's kind of like 
in future for you like like what's in the store in store for you i know we just touched the tip of the iceberg with refashion you also have like the new york supply chain me the worldwide supply chain federation like what are some of the other things you you see yourself doing in future or even with the things you're doing now like how do you want to take that to the next level in say five years so so that but my real focus that's a great question thank you for asking it my real focus is so so maybe everything that lisa and i do is tied to supply chains and innovation and technology, right? So the fund, hopefully we grow the fund. In five years, hopefully we're on, hopefully we're talking to investors about our third fund uh, by the time five years uh, rolls around. And, and hopefully that fund is big enough that we can really make a difference for the early stage founders that are building the innovations that we all need. Just, just to see deployed in, in supply chain. Um, the the community that we've been building, starting with the so with the meetup, the New York supply chain meetup, and then expanding it into the the worldwide supply chain federation, is really about closing the knowledge gap between the people who understand new technology and the people who understand uh, supply chains in a really deep. And once we got started in New York, we heard from people in other places that they too wanted a community like the one that we were building in New York. So hopefully in five years uh, from now, we have many more chapters in other parts of the world uh, uh, enable this sort of dialogue between the builders and the buyers of supply chain uh, technology. And then the other things, I do some writing. So for two years, I was a columnist for, for Freight Waves. I'm looking forward to be able to, um, to pick that up again sometime in the near future uh, uh, and, and continuing to write on my blog. Um, what I really, what over the longer term horizon, what I would really love to be able to do, and I'll have a great sense of pride and fulfillment if I'm able to do this. I'd love one day to be able to announce a, a fund focused on supply chain innovation in Africa. Mm, I was because, going to ask about that. Because the, the, I don't think I talked about this, but when it clicked for me that this is what I should I should do in spite of how difficult it has been and how difficult it is still going to be. Because in 2019, in July, I was reading an article. Uh, I don't remember where it was published. I think it was a blog. But Roche, Roche is a Swiss pharmaceutical company. I don't know if I'm pronouncing the, the name right. But um, Swiss multinational pharmaceutical company. And they had an article about their pharmaceutical supply chains in Nigeria. And the thing I remember from that article is that they said because the, their supply chain in Nigeria is so broken, by the time their products get to the end user in Nigeria, those products have been marked up by between 40% and 700%. Now, if you remember... Cost of delivery. Yes. Now, if you remember, if you remember, I told you about growing up with my grandfather and his illness and whatnot. Whenever I was at home on vacation, one of the things I did when we got back from the farm was I'd jump on his bike and I'd ride around the village to try to find some pills for him to take so, so he could sleep at night. And I was like, wait, those pills 
I used to ride around the village to look for. You mean they could have been marked up by up to 700%? I mean, my, my, my grandfather and my relatives are peasant farmers. I'm pretty certain they live below the poverty line as defined by the World Bank. And they're paying, you know, so much more for these basic medications that they need just because the supply chains are broken. And that's when that's when I realized that this this is more than just an investment opportunity. But if you if you can improve supply chains around the world, what you're really doing is improving lives for a lot. Facts, facts, especially in That's, places like Africa. And it's interesting you have like a personal... Especially in places like Sub-Saharan Africa, uh, Latin America, Southeast Asia. That's where any improvements in supply chains makes a big difference in people's lives. It really makes a big difference in people's lives, right? And in the West, it will be wonderful, right? If you and I, if supply chains function a little better and we get our stuff from Amazon in one day instead of two days, of course, that would be great. But, you know, think about, you know, my grandfather or someone like him in the village where life-saving medicine is marked up by 700%. What if we could do it? So what if we, we could get to a point where it's not marked up by 700%, it's marked up by 200%. And I guess there are a lot of opportunities in that regard because a lot of, what's the name of that startup? Is it Zipline that's using drones to deliver yeah, blood to blood, and, blood banks yeah. in Ghana and things like yes. that? Yes. So yes. when I think about supply chain in sub-Saharan Africa, I always Imagine how did Coca Cola do it? Because Coca Cola was always there. How did they? <laughs> Coca Cola was. Coca Cola. I don't know how they moved their products know, across I... the continent. I don't know. So I think, and that's why you know, I said I said it the way I said it that we have a fund that's focused on Africa because I think you almost need, and I'm not sure if this is how Coca Cola did it. I'd imagine it is. I think you need a regionalized approach. Right, so that the way Coca-Cola runs its business in sub-Saharan Africa is not the same way that it runs its business in Europe, which is probably not the same way it runs its business in North America, right? Because the, the, the challenges are different, the regulations are different, you have to team up with different sorts of partners and whatnot. So you need a very regionalized, very localized approach if you're going to succeed. Wow, that makes sense. I mean, you're you're truly like an inspiration for, you know, people like myself and tons of other immigrants like listening to this, like coming from where you come from and just to be where you are now. And this is not even the end of the story. Like we're still watching it unfold in real time. Um, all we can do is to, you know, wish you the best and to tell you not to stop because you continue to inspire us. Um, so yeah, thank you so much. Uh, for coming on the podcast. Would you like to like drop like your email or you know social media handles if people in the supply chain industry, maybe people who are interested in the W3C Federation or you know people who have uh, startups in, in Africa who might be interested in getting in touch sometime in the future, uh, you, you might want to share your contact. Yeah, I, I think the easiest the easiest way is if people just type my name Brian Aware A O A E H into Google. Uh, it it should be easy. It should be easy to get a hold of me. Uh, I'm very active on Twitter. People can DM me there. I'm on LinkedIn. People can DM me there. Uh, uh, our website at Refashioned can get a hold of me there. My email is Brian B R 
R-I-F-I-A-N at refashioned.com. Uh, refashioned is spelled without the E. Uh, we, we did that so we could trademark the, the name. Um, so yeah, if, if people just type Brian away into Google, <laughs> they'll probably be like, oh my God. <laughs> so many things. <laughs> Your digital footprint is all so out there. <laughs> Can we see some DJ pictures on Google as well or no? <laughs> uh, no, no, no. You scrubbed no, that, well, scrub that one out of Google. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think there are any pictures. Oh, man. oh Lord. Yeah, thank you so much, Brian, for coming yeah. on the podcast. As usual, guys, uh, you guys can also follow Culture Class Podcast everywhere. I uh, will try to have some of the links that Brian talked about in the description of this episode. So if you guys want to click on that, you can, you know, see what he's about. Reach out to him on Twitter or through his email and, you know, connect with him. Uh, in the meantime, check out our website. It's cultureclasspodcast.com. Um, let us know what we're doing right and what we're doing wrong. And as we continue to progress to episode 150 in November, the podcast is going to be three years old in November. We're really looking forward to it. And we have a lot of things in store for you listeners. But till then, and until the next episode, be well. <laughs>